about if you have it with you. We are in Matthew chapter 1. I'll give you a moment to find it in your Bible, but it will come up on the screen as well if you don't have yours with you. But we're in Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to start at verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Well, good morning and Merry Christmas. It is great to be together, isn't it? I'm so delighted that you've decided to come out this morning and celebrate together. Hey, I want to spend a little bit of time thinking with you about that passage that was just read out for us. And as I jump in, many of you will know uh, that my wife, Emma, and I have two kids. Their birthdays are actually in early January. And so uh, that means that about this time of the year, for two of the last five or six years, a key conversation topic between Emma, my wife, and I uh, is exactly the kind of thing that Shell was just describing. We're going, what are we going to call them? What are we going to call them? Now, if you've got children, you'll know that's not an easy decision to make. Uh, you've got to think through things like, who else has the name? Will they get teased, right? Does it rhyme with anything? Uh, does it go with the surname? Things like that. What made it even harder for us, though, is that Emma and I each had slightly different philosophies of naming. And so, for example, I was quite keen on something biblical. Uh, as we will see today, there is a rich history in the Bible of names having deep meaning and significance. And so, for example, there's a lady named Hannah. She's barren. She wants a kid, so she prays and prays and prays and prays. God opens her womb. She gets a kid. She calls him Samuel, which means God has heard. Or there's another man. His name is Abram. His wife is barren, so they don't have kids, but they're longing for children. One day, God comes to Abram and says, you're going to be the father of many nations. And then he changes the name to Abraham, which means father of many. And so again, I had a longing for children with deep, rich biblical names. Um, Emma's philosophy, it wasn't anti-biblical. Uh, it, it wasn't anti-meaning. Uh, but she had spent a number of years teaching in religious schools. And so let's just say she'd had her fair share of Isaiah's, Ezekiel's, Hezekiah's, uh, Rebecca's, Rachel's, Sarah's, and without going into details, some of them have been pretty nasty and had ruined some good biblical names for us. And so, in the end, hers was closer to, does it sound cool? Uh, 
As many of you know, our daughter is named Brooke, our son is named Tyler, neither of those are in the Bible, one means little stream, the other means one who lays tiles, and so you can, <laughs> you can, guess, you can guess who won. <laughs> the reason I bring that up is because I want to think with you today about the two names given to the baby. In other words, I, I want, for adults, I want to do a similar thing to what Shell did with us uh, for the kids. And I want to think about each of them in turn. What do these names tell us about the child and why he came? So the first one, we'll start with Emmanuel, and the second one, we'll move on to Jesus. So as we start with Emmanuel, uh, read with me on the screen from Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. It says, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a bunch of stuff in there, uh, but the key thing we're supposed to notice is that Joseph isn't the father. Why? Well, the baby has come through the Holy Spirit. Now, it's worth saying, uh, we know from Luke's Gospel that Mary had actually seen an angel. The angel has already told her about this. So, she knows what's going on, but Joseph hasn't had that yet. And so, uh, we actually know from uh, this Gospel that you know, yeah, probably Mary would have told him, but he's not buying it. You can imagine, that's a hard pill to swallow. I promise it was an angel, or it was the Holy Spirit. And so he plans to divorce her, uh, but in the end, before he gets that chance, he gets his own angelic vision, verse 20. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Why? Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Again, that's the second time we've been told that the baby in the womb is from the Holy Spirit. The point is being reinforced. Uh, Joseph, nor some other young spunk, is the father of this child. This child is going to be the Son of God. So what's God going to call it? What's God going to call His Son? Well, we get the answer, the first name, if you like, in verse 22-23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. The prophet there, uh, he's referring to there is the prophet Isaiah. He prophesied about 700 years before Jesus was born. And so 700 years before Jesus, God had spoken through the mouth of a prophet. One day, a virgin is going to conceive and she's going to give birth to a baby. And if that's not remarkable enough, this baby is going to be called Emmanuel because he will be God with us. Uh, theologians call this the incarnation. A carn is a Latin word which means meat or flesh. And so you have chili con carn, uh, chili with meat. You have carnal behavior, fleshly behavior. And so the incarnation is the enfleshing of God. And it's arguably one of the greatest miracles that God has ever performed. Uh, theologian G.I. Packer, J.I. Packer, sorry, puts it like this. He says it's here, it's like G.I. Joe, G.I. Packer. <laughs> that would be a very different kind of theologian, wouldn't it? <laughs> says it's here in the thing that happened at the first Christmas, that the profoundest and most unfathomable depths of the Christian revelation lie. The Word became flesh. God became a man. The Divine Son became a Jew. The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and state and wriggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Uh, look around. 
there's a number of little kids in the room. There's a number of babies. Isn't it remarkable that the creator of heaven and earth chose to enter our world in the form of a little child? I think G.I. Packer is right. Uh, The more you think about it, the more it just boggles the mind. So suppose you ask, what's the significance? Like, what does that actually mean for us? Uh, I think there's a range of things we could say, uh, but this morning I'm just going to limit my comments. I'm going to make one comment for three different groups. One for the skeptic, one for the seeker, and one if you're amongst us as a believer. Maybe you're a skeptic, and maybe you, you hear this story and you think, gee, you know, the virgin birth, the incarnation, it all sounds like a bit of a tall tale. If that's your inclination, if that's your leaning, first of all, welcome. Um, but you should know you're in good company, because remember, we've already seen Joseph, likewise, had a difficult time believing this idea. It's worth saying, the idea that God would become a man was almost unthinkable for the Jews. See, if Joseph had believed in sort of the Eastern pantheistic religions, where everything around us has a little spark of the divine, maybe you could see that happening. Uh, you know, it's still a stretch, but at least it's conceivable within that worldview. Or if he'd been a follower of one of the uh, polytheistic Greek religions, where there was sort of this idea that sometimes the gods would come and walk amongst human beings, sort of disguised among them. Again, you could imagine him maybe believing this. But in Jewish thinking, there is a fundamental distinction between the Creator and His creation. And so no Jew is going to believe that God becomes a human being without a really good reason for doing so. Now maybe you say, yeah, but He got an angel. Like if an angel appeared to me, sure, I'd believe as well. Maybe. But part of the reason He got an angel is so that you don't need one. By which I mean, there's been plenty of people ever since Joseph who have believed that Jesus was, in fact, God come amongst us in human flesh. Yeah, one or two of them got an angel. About a couple of thousand saw the miracles as Jesus performed them in his ministry. Actually, billions of people since then have believed in Jesus on the basis of the word of the eyewitnesses. Uh, Eyewitnesses like Matthew whose account we're reading today. Now, I I know that's not going to convince you, I I suspect. Um, But part of the reason I raise it is just to flag with you that there is enough in the Christmas story to answer the questions and the doubts of even the greatest skeptic. And so if that's where you find yourself, again, welcome. But I want to say, maybe make it your New Year's resolution to come back and reconsider who Jesus is and some of the evidence for his divinity. That's for the skeptic. Maybe you, though, are a seeker. Uh, Perhaps you say, no, I I believe in God. I believe that miracles certainly are possible. I'm just still not 100% sure which God is the real God. And to be honest, I'm sympathetic to that because, let's face it, there's a lot of different religions out there. The Hindus have their gods. uh, The Muslims have their god. Jews have theirs, just to name a few. And what's more, each of the different religions all claim that their god or their gods are the true gods. Why? Well, in part, it's because each of the founders of those religions have claimed to have heard a voice from God or had an encounter with God or had some moment of enlightenment. Now, at the end of the day, I have very little doubt that each of them experienced something. I I doubt many people are going to really just completely come up with it. But whether it was God speaking to them 
is another thing entirely. And, and at the end of the day, how would you know? You can't get inside their head to figure out what they experience. Well, this is where Christianity is so different. This is where the mis- message of Christmas makes every difference. Because the message of Christmas is not that Jesus heard a voice from God, but that Jesus was God. The message of Christmas is that uh, God has come into our world in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And what's more, he managed somehow to convince a whole bunch of people who were theologically predisposed to reject that as impossible, that he was, in fact, God in the flesh. And so how does that help you as a seeker? Well, if you're seeking after truth, and Christianity says, come to Jesus and investigate him, because it won't, uh, truth be told, it will not give you a watertight truth. It just doesn't exist. What it will give you, though, is a watertight person. It gives you a manual. It says, you want to seek for truth? You're searching for who God is? Start with Jesus. Because in Jesus, you will find the answer to all the questions of your heart. So if you're seeking, can I say, come and investigate who Jesus is. Uh, But maybe you're here. I suspect this is many of us on a day like today. Maybe you're here and you're a believer. What does the incarnation mean for us? Well, aside from the fact that the baby in the manger is the God that we worship and we serve, what else? Well, I suppose I just want to encourage you to reflect on what kind of God the Christmas story reveals to us. See, imagine your God. How would you choose to enter the world? Is it in a display of power? You know, a golden chariot trailed by 10,000 legions of angels? Is it in a display of wealth, you come and you live in a palace of pearls? Or is it in a display of humility, born as a baby in an animal feeding trough? The Christmas story introduces us to a radically different kind of God, because in the Christmas story, the most high becomes the most low. And so as the hymn writer Edward Caswell once wrote, low within a manger lies he who built the starry skies. Sacred infant, all divine, what a tender love was thine, thus to come from highest bliss down to such a world as this. Grace City, if this is the God you worship, then it ought to radically reshape and redefine how you treat those you engage with. You won't lead with a display of power or wealth, but like your God, you'll lead with a display of humility. And so again, J.R. Packer puts it like this, the Christmas spirit does not shine out in the Christian snob, for the Christmas spirit is the spirit of those who, like their master, live their whole lives on the principle of making themselves poor, spending and being spent to enrich their fellow humans, giving time, trouble and care and concern to do good to others, and not just their own friends, in whatever way their sins mourn. As you head off to Christmas lunch or dinner or Boxing Day celebrations, wherever it is, can I take you, encourage you, sorry, to take with you the Christmas spirit. Uh, Let your friends, your family, your neighbours know how different you are because Emmanuel is your God. That's the first one. God gave him two names. The first is Emmanuel. The second, though, is Jesus. And we get this in verse 21. The angel tells Joseph she will give birth to a son and you were to give him the name Jesus. Why? he will save his why because he anyway he will save his people from their sins 
Second of all, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. Growing up, most kids are going to be curious to some extent about why their parents gave them the name that they have. So kids, if you're still here, if you can hear me outside, uh, not now, uh, but later on, go home and ask your parents, hey, why did you call me whatever you called me? Because uh, you can imagine Jesus had that kind of a conversation with Joseph, can't you? Imagine Jesus and Joseph working together in the carpentry shop out back. And Jesus says to Joe, hey, hey Joe, why did you call me Jesus? And Joe responds, look, we, we wanted something cool like Tyler, but um, <laughs> uh, the angel told us you would save your people from your sins, from their sins. Uh, how's that for parental pressure, right? You think your parents have high expectations of you. Imagine what Jesus was like growing up. But true to his name, that is exactly what Jesus did. Both in his life and in his death, he perfectly fit his name. You see, throughout his life and his ministry, Jesus, he's constantly saving people from the, the crippling effects of sin. And so if you had the ability to time travel back to 35 AD, and you could go around and survey the people in Jerusalem and the countryside of Judea, you would have some fascinating conversations. Uh, you might meet a man who was born blind, but could now see. You ask him, how did that happen? Jesus saved me. Or you'd meet a woman who'd been bleeding for 12 years. She'd given up all her money trying to solve it. And now she's healed. And you say, how did that happen? Jesus saved me. Or you'd meet a little girl, 12 years old, who was dying. Jesus came and raised her back to life. How did that happen? Jesus saved me. See, all through his life and his ministry, Jesus was saving people from the crippling effects of sin, the effects of sin in the world. But it's not until his death and resurrection, right? his death at the cross and his resurrection three days later, that he really saves his people from the consequences of sin. See, uh, what is sin? Just think about it like this. Uh, the word sin means to miss the mark and so if you like you could say that god's word gives us a bullseye what does a bullseye look like a bullseye looks like love the lord your god with all your heart soul mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself right that's what a bullseye is and so when the the arrow of our love misses the target that's what sin is uh, failing to love as we should the thing is that that does make it sound like sin is really just you know the failure of our best attempts. It's like, you know, we, we tried to hit the bullseye. Sorry, I missed it. No one's perfect. Give me a break. This is why I think it's, it's also helpful to think about love as disordered loves or misplaced loves. In other words, we haven't just failed to love God as we should. We've also taken the love that He deserves and transferred it onto something else. Like what we've done is taken good things and elevated them to become God things. And so that is why sin is so serious. It is the dethroning of God. It's transferring love from the one who deserves it as the ultimate source of all things to good things. We've dethroned, we've de-godded God. And so that's what sin is. But what are its consequences? Because remember, that's the promise of the angel. Uh, he's going to save his people from their sins. I was thinking about it during the week. You know, how would I explain what the consequences of sin are? Uh, and I found myself realizing 
when you look at each of the different biblical authors, the different characters, you start to notice that each of them use slightly different words to describe the consequences of sin. So I'll give them to you. Just brace yourself. Warning, brace yourself. Uh, Jesus spoke of hell, a place of gnashing teeth and outer darkness. The Apostle Paul spoke of wrath, condemnation, being shut out of the presence of the Lord. The Apostle Peter spoke of destruction, punishment, judgment. And the Apostle John spoke of a lake of burning sulfur. Happy Christmas. Now, I know it's all pretty heavy stuff. And the point of giving you each of the different words is not to say, look, they all disagreed. There's a lot of overlap between the concepts and frankly, each of them use different words interchangeably as well. The point of giving you each of those is really just to highlight the seriousness of sin and its consequence. We have dethroned God and yet the incredible, remarkable grace and mercy of God that he would come into our world to save us from that. Remember the promise of the angel? You've got to call him Jesus. Why? Because he's going to save his people from their sins. See, this is why Christmas, the birth in the manger was always leading to Easter, the death on the cross. J.R. Packer, one last time, puts it like this. Bound up in the Christmas message of the incarnation is the Easter message of the atonement. For if Jesus was not God-made man, then we remain in our sins. But the reality of the first advent is that God, in all of his riches, became poor so that we might become rich in Christ. And so for Jesus, the nativity was a riches to rags story. But for us, it marks the opening scene of history's greatest rags to riches story. The dawning of light and hope of life for those dead in sin. I love that last line. The Christmas story marks the opening scene of history's greatest rags to riches story. The dawning of light and hope of life for those dead in sin. It's impossible to talk about Christmas without also going to Easter. Why? Well, because it's ultimately at the cross and the message of Easter that Jesus fulfills the promise of the angel. You've got to call him Jesus. Why? He's going to save his people from their sins. Let me finish up. As I finish up, I want to come back to Joseph. And the reason I want to do that is in part because I reckon Joseph often gets overlooked in the Christmas story. You know, uh, we often rightly focus on Jesus, his birthday after all. But then after Jesus, we usually go to Mary or we go to the angels or we go to the shepherds. Or if you're here last night, we go to the wise men. And they're all good, but rarely do we go to Jesus, uh, sorry, to Joseph. I reckon that's an oversight because I do think there are some helpful things to learn from Joseph. So, for example, imagine Joseph's life before he has this dream where the angel appears to him. I reckon he had other dreams. And dreams of the kind of life that he was going to live. You know, Joseph was a descendant of the great King David. He was a respectable guy. Joseph was pledged to be married to a respectable woman. And he probably had dreams of a great, good family, respectable, making something of himself and his family. And then this happens. Not only is Mary pregnant with a kid that's not his own, the angel tells him, I want you to marry him, her, and take the baby home and raise it as your own. At that point, Joseph is faced with a decision. What's he going to do? Is he going to ignore God's word? Call off the betrothal, go and search for another wife and try and live the life of his dreams? Or 
Does he have the courage to take God at, at his word, say goodbye to his dreams, and let the baby turn his life upside down? Now, make no mistake about it, Joseph's decision took courage. That's why the angel says what he does. Do not be afraid, David, son of Joseph, to take Mary home with you, uh, your wife. Uh, you might have come here today with dreams for your life, what it was going to look like, what it was going to be. But as you've been listening tonight, this morning, uh, you found yourself feeling, getting the distinct impression, if I can put it like this, that God wants you to take Jesus home with you. I'm not an angel. I'm pretty sure God is saying to you, don't be afraid. Because truth be told, he will turn your life upside down. He will. That's what happens. But he'll turn it upside down in all the right ways. And so really we could say he'll turn it right side up. You remember what Packer said? The Christmas story is the opening scene of history's greatest rags to riches story. Well, this is your chance to become a character in that story. And so have courage. And by faith, take Jesus home today. You can join the greatest story ever told. Grace City. Merry Christmas. Let's join together in faith. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that today we celebrate and we remember the miracle of all miracles, that you in the person of your Son would come into our world as a baby. Thank you for what that teaches us about who you are and the kind of humble, gentle, loving God that you are. Help us to worship you and to live for you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.